Good morning, church. My name is Colton, and I have the honor of reading our scripture passage today. It's going to be Isaiah uh, chapter 61. And uh, the whole chapter, if you're reading from a pew Bible, it's going to be page 717, and it'll be up on the screen as well. Isaiah chapter 61, starting in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes." The oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up ancient ruins, they shall raise up the former devastations, they shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks, foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy." For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in him. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all nations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. Well, good morning. Happy Easter. It's a joy to be able to, to uh, bring God's word for us this morning on this Easter Sunday and to get to witness people being baptized and experiencing the resurrection life of the living Jesus is amazing. There's nothing better than that. Well, as we approach Isaiah 61, uh, we're finishing up this Easter kind of a short sermon series through our new vision statement as we walk through passages of Isaiah. So if you're new to our church, this is what we're about. See the weak, wounded, and wayward enjoy the living Jesus. And this morning, we're going to focus in on that last phrase, fittingly, the living Jesus from the text of Isaiah 61. And as we start to do that this morning, I have a little bit of a bold claim to make. I hope to substantiate it as we go. But if Jesus were to have a vision statement, I think it would be Isaiah 61. Now, you're like, that's convenient. That's the passage that you're preaching this morning. (laughs) You preachers say stuff like that all the time. But in Luke chapter 4, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus launches his public ministry by reading Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 in a synagogue. 
And then before he sits down, he closes the scroll and he says, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am the anointed one of the spirit of the Lord in Isaiah 61. I am the promised king that is anointed by God's spirit. Now, this vision of King Jesus is massive. It's all encompassing. I wish we had two hours to talk about it, but we have 20 minutes. But in this vision statement by the Lord Jesus, we will see that Jesus has come to proclaim good news to weak, wounded, and wayward people that they can find joy as citizens of his kingdom. And so let's start with that phrase in verse 1, proclaim good news to the poor. Now, this phrase summarizes and encapsulates all of those purpose statements that follow afterwards in verses 1 through 3. So if you look down and see all of the two do this, two do this, to proclaim good news to the poor summarizes each of those statements. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to proclaim good news to those who feel like they can't go on one more day. For those whose pillows are wet and crusty from crying themselves to sleep, for the captive to addiction, for the chronically anxious, for the materially poor person who feels like they don't have anything to offer, for those who can't imagine one more day living with the hole in their hearts that exists from their loved one passing away, for those who feel like God wants nothing to do with them, for those who feel like a waste of space. To simplify it down to three categories, Jesus came for the weak, for the wounded, and for the wayward. And what is the nature of this good news that he proclaims to the poor? What does that good news consist of and look like? Well, if we look closer at verses 1 to 3, we see that it's the good news of his kingdom. The kingdom that this anointed king is going to bring Now, if we're really going to understand the nature of Jesus's kingdom, we have to press into that word liberty in verse one to proclaim liberty to the captives. That word liberty there is is the word that's used to describe the practice of the year of Jubilee that's given to the nation of Israel. So if you go back in your Old Testament and you read uh, in Leviticus chapter 25, You'll read of this practice called the year of Jubilee that the nation of Israel was supposed to do. And it functioned like a sort of reset, reset button for the people. So every 50th year was to be one of these years of Jubilee. And in that year, slaves would be set free, debts would be canceled, and property was to be returned to its original owner. It was a time of freedom and rejoicing in the land, especially for those who were slaves or underprivileged economically. Now, interestingly, if you look at history and if you look at the scriptures, this practice actually was never put into play. The Israelites never actually did the year of Jubilee. And you can imagine why. It would not, like, this all sounds like good news for those who are on the bottom, but for those who are on the top... This might be painful. If you were benefiting from the indebted and the enslaved, this would be a difficult practice. 
But what Jesus is proclaiming here by saying that he has come to proclaim Jubilee is he's saying that his mission is to take this practice from Israel and proclaim it to the whole world. That the whole world might experience this year of Jubilee. In a word, he's come proclaiming that he will make all things new. Imagine what this Jubilee would look like in your life. The guilt of your sin gone. The consequences of your sin on generations that would come after you erased. The trauma of sexual abuse eradicated. The relationships that were severed because of your selfishness restored. Injustices and wrongs made right. Fear and anxiety eliminated. The bags under your eyes and aches in your bones gone. Societal institutions clear of corruption. That's the grand scale jubilee that Jesus is proclaiming for you and for the whole world. The the outworking of Jesus' good news for the poor means nothing else than total joy for his destitute and down and out people. That's what it's, that's what we see in verse three. Look with me there. It says, Jesus was sent to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. The good news of Jesus for the poor and captive, for the weak, wounded and wayward is none other than a complete reversal. The exchange of sorrow for joy. To bring nothing short of what the book of Revelation calls heaven coming down to earth. But notice that Jesus didn't just come to bring a kingdom without himself as the king. In other words, Jesus' vision statement is not just to give us new moral principles upon which we can improve ourselves and have a more just society. This is why Jesus doesn't just come as a prophet announcing this year of Jubilee. He comes as a king to bring it about, to enact it. Now think about that for a second this morning. If you're here and you're not a Christian or maybe you're checking out Christianity, you would probably agree with me that Jesus is a good moral teacher. He does teach good moral things for us to do. You might even say that he's a prophet of sorts who announces to us a better way to live. You might agree with that. I mean, who really, when you think about it, who wouldn't want to live in a society like what Jesus is proclaiming here? But if all Jesus came to do was to proclaim a new and just way of life, If Jesus' vision was simply to tell us what we're doing wrong and how we can fix it, that's not good news for us. This is true because all of our ways as human beings ultimately lead to decay and death. Everything that we touch comes to ruin. And not only that... But this idea of Jesus bringing new moral commands doesn't square with what Jesus himself claims that he has come to do in Isaiah 61. 
Jesus doesn't come claiming to be a mere man whose goal it would be to set up an ethical program that would continue on whether or not he was alive. Jesus proclaimed himself as our king who would save us from the stinking garbage heap of our collective human projects. King Jesus himself comes as our salvation, as our king to bring about his kingdom of jubilee. Look with me at verse 10 and we'll see this clearly. It says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. And as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Now this might be a strange question to you. But but go with me here for a second. Have you ever thought about what brings Jesus the most joy? What makes Jesus' heart exceedingly glad? We get a picture of it here in verse 10. So you notice in verse 10, we get a shift back to the first person singular. I will greatly rejoice. My soul shall exalt. The anointed one from verses 1 through 3 is speaking to us again. Jesus is speaking again, and this time he's letting us in on what brings him joy. But not just that, great joy. Literally, in the Hebrew, in verse 10, greatly rejoice is a translation of rejoice, rejoice. This is serious, grand joy. So what does Jesus take utmost joy in? Bringing his salvation and righteousness to sinners what we see in verse 10. Now, it's Easter today, so a lot of us have on fresh new clothes, or maybe uh, clothes that we wouldn't wear on a normal day. I don't usually preach in a blazer. This usually isn't my thing, but it's Easter, so I do. (laughs) We feel good in fresh new clothes, right? It makes us feel good. In the day in life when we probably feel most special because of the clothes that we wear, is on our wedding day. For those of you who are married, or some of you in our church who will be married here soon. Now this is partially true for guys. I mean, who doesn't love a fresh suit, right? Or if you're a groomsman making your, you know, your buddy making you pay $250 for a fresh suit. (laughs) But it's especially true for the bride in her dress. See, the bride and her family spend a large amount of time and money on her wedding day wardrobe. And this wardrobe, particularly the dress, signals to the guests which woman is the one getting married. It sets her apart as beautiful. And she takes great joy in her dress as she walks down the aisle and experiences that day. But even more than that, even more than in her dress, the bride takes joy in the one that she is wearing that dress for, her husband. And in the same way, the husband takes joy in his wife coming to meet him. Verse 10 tells us that Jesus is set apart 
as the one who will bring salvation and that he delights to bring salvation. But even more than this, Jesus delights in wearing the garments of salvation and righteousness for us. You see this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. It says this, Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is what it meant for Jesus to wear the garments of salvation for you. This was not a shallow happiness. This was costly joy. He stared down death on a cross, bearing the wrath of God for the sin of everyone who would come to him. And yet he swallowed that sin up and death with it in joy and took it to the grave. But church... The grave will not contain the joy of Jesus. The most important phrase of this verse is, and is seated, present tense. And the most important phrase of our vision statement is that last one, the living Jesus. If Jesus stayed in the grave, there is no joy for us or for him. If Jesus stayed in the, in the grave, then he put on the garment of salvation in vain. If he remained in the grave, we cannot enjoy the living Jesus any more than a grown adult can truly enjoy playing with an imaginary friend. But Jesus devoured death and rose from the grave and now sits enthroned today as the king of the universe where he extends his kingdom of grace and joy to any who would come to him. Jesus' vision was not to bring some sort of renewed ethical system and way for us to get ourselves to God. He came to turn mourning into dancing, to bring dead things to life, Starting with himself. We can enjoy Jesus today because Jesus is alive. And this morning, if you're here and you've never experienced the joy that comes from knowing the living Jesus. But rather you're walking in the confusion and doubt and dread that come from this world of sin and death. I would encourage you today to come to Jesus and live. Trust that his death was your death. That he took your sin to the grave. And that his life ensures your life with him forever. Trust him to satisfy all of the longings of your heart. And he will. He delights to save sinners like you and like me. But now look at what begins to happen as the weak, wounded, and wayward trust in the living Jesus and experience his kingdom of jubilee. Look with me again at verse 3. So picking up from before, Jesus was sent to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Now watch this, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Now several years ago, 
my wife and I got the privilege of going out to California on vacation. And we got to drive down the, uh, Route 1, down the coastal highway there in California. And one night we stopped in Big Sur, Big Sur State Park and we camped underneath these redwood trees. And it was one of the most surreal experiences waking up that morning and taking a walk around our campground, sipping coffee in between these giants and just looking up everywhere and being amazed by these massive, strong redwood trees. As we experience the grace of the living Jesus, as we begin to delight in his love for us, we begin less and less to resemble a twig that snaps under your feet as you walk on the forest floor. And more and more, we resemble sturdy, strong redwood trees that you look up to and admire as you walk. See, Jesus may not have come just to give new moral teachings. But when Jesus plants us in the garden of salvation... When he raises our dead hearts to life, we grow in both joy and righteousness. God is most glorified. At the end of verse 3, we read that. God is most glorified and Jesus is most filled with joy. When the resurrection power of Jesus springs up into lives of joyful obedience to our King. That's what the resurrection creates in us. To say it another way. Because Jesus is alive, his people ought to display the power of his kingdom of jubilee by our lives overflowing with joy and justice. This world ought to look at your life and our life together as a church and not be able to deny the reality of the living Jesus because of the joy we have in his salvation and the type of life that he produces in us. We are walking, breathing testimonies that Jesus is alive. And as we experience the jubilee of King Jesus, and as we live that out together, we have the opportunity to show the world what it looks like when Jesus reigns as king. We have the opportunity to be an embassy of divine joy. Well, my community group here at church, uh, we, we've kind of unofficially adopted this slogan as a community group. We've been talking about, this has come up a lot in our discussions recently. The phrase is this, no more grumpy Christians. <laughs> I don't, it's, it's come up a lot. Uh, joy has been the subject of our discussion a lot of times, which has been awesome. The reason why we've started to think that way and say that is because a grumpy Christian is an oxymoron. Not only that, a grumpy Christian is an unfaithful witness to the world that Jesus is alive and that he changes lives. This world doesn't need more grumpy Christians. That is no solution. Now, hear me on this. This is not just a call to be happy. If life is horrible and I tell you just to be happy anyway, that's cruelty. But joy in the resurrected Jesus can be yours. You can look beyond your circumstances because there is a king who reigns, who conquered death, 
who will make all things new and who will one day wipe away every tear from our eyes. That's not cruelty. That's hope. And we could argue that for both ourselves and our world, nothing is more urgent than hope and joy. What we need most is to enjoy the living Jesus. And what our world needs most is to see that joy of the living Jesus in us. Our joy is serious business to God. And the resurrection of Jesus is proof of that. And so as we go from here today, church, take joy in the living Jesus You need it more than anything else. And this world needs it more than anything else. Because more than anything else, we need a king who is not dead, but is alive. Here are these words from that hymn we sing every year at Christmas. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Joy to the world, because Jesus is alive. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you today that our joy is wrapped up in yours. And that that is priority number one. Lord, thank you that you are not dead, but you are alive today. Thank you that we are not people who say prayers and sing songs of worship to an imaginary friend in the sky, but to one who is alive, who hears and will come again to make all things new and all things right. Bolster us today, Lord, in hope and in joy. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.